This is In the Ring with Sumo Heavy, a weekly e-commerce podcast with your hosts, John Suter, Bart Moraz, and Brittany Blackman. In the Ring features interviews with e-commerce leaders, as well as the latest news and strategies to give listeners actionable ideas and inspiration for their e-commerce businesses. The podcast is a production of Sumo Heavy, an e-commerce consulting firm with offices in Brooklyn, New York, and Philadelphia. Find us on the web at sumoheavy.com. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest. It's Ashley Murrow. She's the CEO and founder of Lunya. As founder of Lunya and men's division Lago, Ashley is reinventing sleepwear for modern women and men, respectively. Both brands share a simple mission to make people feel confidently comfortable at home and with themselves. Beyond her sleepwear entrepreneurship, Ashley is principal at impact investing firm NAHCO3, where she leverages her background in venture, technology, and the arts to invest in ways that leverage businesses to create opportunity and move humanity forward. Ashley is also the CEO and co-founder of The Deep, a media platform that makes philosophy and personal exploration accessible through thought-provoking questions and content. Enjoy our interview with Ashley Merrill of Lunya. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to jump right in here. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your origin story, and how Lunya came to be? Okay. Let me see if I can condense my life down into like a, a quick minute for you. <laughs> so my name is Ashley Merrill. I'm the founder and CEO of Lunya and Lago. Those are uh, the male and female versions of uh, what we're, what our modern sleepwear brand. And um, I started in 2012 based on a personal experience. I was wearing my husband's old shirt and his old boxer briefs and just really thought, is there something I could, could wear that would be better than this? Obviously that was a pretty low bar, so it wasn't hard to, to improve on that. But when I really started to look around, I couldn't find anything that felt uh, like it was really solving my needs. I found lingerie and I found traditional pajama sets, but nothing felt like it could make me feel like comfortable and confident. Everything felt um, uh, like it, it had, you know, it was about looking a certain way, but not about feeling a certain way. And, and so ultimately that kind of started the Lunia journey. Uh, I did not have a background in clothing. Actually, my background was much more business. I came from an online media company. But I just, I could relate to this customer need. And so even though I didn't have the clothing background, I, I felt still like the right person to begin to tackle this challenge. And, you know, started with the bar of, can I make something that is really high quality and comfortable and now, and, and really optimized for sleeping. And I would say the company has evolved a lot because that was quite a few years ago. And so now, you know, I'm able to use uh, still primarily natural fibers, but infuse them with with technology or with with innovation can make them function really well. So, as an example, if you're a hot sleeper, we have a cool collection. It's still mostly natural Pima cotton, but woven in such a way that it helps it helps dissipate sweat. We put silver in it, which is helpful for, for antimicrobial. These are the kind of things that you're used to seeing in synthetic athletic wear, but not something that you're used to seeing. Um, in predominantly natural fibers at home. And so I've been able to innovate in a number of different ways, far beyond what I even originally envisioned. And then, you know, along with that, I think that the, the world has shifted a lot since then and has moved towards a much more comfortable lifestyle. And so, uh, you know, now I joke, but today when I want to go on a date with my husband, I'm much more inclined to order Sugarfish on Postmates and watch a comedy show on Netflix than I am to go out 
out. And so I think that the use case for wearing Lumia and Lago has expanded a lot, where now it's sort of the clothes I wear for all of those slow moments, you know, the, those meaningful moments, but the, the comfortable ones that I'm wearing, um, you know, around the house or uh, doing errands, that kind of thing. You would almost say like it's high performance sleepwear. Would you agree? Yeah. Yes. We've, we've uh, kind of made plenty of jokes about how it performs in the bedroom. <laughs> so talk a little bit more about the, the, the process of design and selecting the materials. Like you, you had the idea, but where do you start with that? Like where do you, you have the germ of the idea. What's the next step? I mean, you just, just open, you know, open the internet and say, you know, how do I manufacture sleepwear or wh wh how did that come to be? Yeah, it, it did look surprisingly like that. Um, you know, what I did was I, I started, once I convinced myself that I thought there was a good opportunity there, which by the way, took a while. I'm, a, I'm my own harshest critic. Uh, I, I had to talk to a lot of people to make sure that it felt like it was a need that was bigger than just this isolated experience that I was having. And then once I was convinced that there was a market there, um, or at least some kind of an opportunity there. I did start to articulate that this was a vision that I had. This was a dream I had, something I wanted to do. And what's amazing as a first step is how important just articulating that is. Um, I started, I, I remember I was telling a friend of mine, she owned a retail store, like a multi-brand retail store. I said, you know, I think I'm gonna make a, a company that really specializes in clothes for the home. And she was like, oh, that's, that's cool. Um, you know, where are you at with that? And he was like, well, nowhere. You know, I don't, where do I start? And what's amazing is she was a very unlikely person in the sense that, yes, she ran a multi-brand retail company, but didn't have any, um, that, you know, personal ties to manufacturing. But she connected me with somebody who ran um, production at another company who she knew would do some consulting on the side. And weirdly, that was the sort of, um, the ball that got a lot of things rolling for me. Um, and so from there, I ended up, uh, you know, saying yes to that meeting and, and meeting uh, and, and that meeting turned into a, a consultancy partnership. And then she helped teach me about um, the development pipeline and, and production and the key people I was going to need to work with in order to make a product. And that was the rest is history. Oh, okay. So now you've got your manufacturing in line and you've, you've made a determination about what you're going to sell. And, and I guess the overall feeling and design of it, um, assembling your team, what was that like? Like, was it just you working in your kitchen and you went, Oh crap, I need to hire this person or that person. Or what did that look like? How did you, how did you navigate through that? Yeah. So I started in a way that I would say was sort of atypical. In the past few years, a lot of people have started by raising a huge amount of money and then hiring um, because I think the markets had, you know, there was, there was a lot of liquidity in the markets. I think I just wasn't confident enough to do that strategy. Um, so for me, it did look more like what you described, which was it was me at my house, um, seeing how little I could spend to get to proof of concept. And then the next step, when I started to go, okay, I need to bring on someone, I wasn't bringing on a specialist. I brought a, on a part-time person, and she and I were both pretty inexperienced. So in hindsight, that was an interesting choice that I made. Um, but she was actually the very perfect person because uh, she had the right mindset, right? She and I didn't know what to do, but we were both willing to do anything it took to figure it out. 
And so for quite a while, it was just she and I um, working out of my house together. And we were both, I call it Jill of all, uh, uh, you know, Jill of all trades. <laughs> we would alternate between literally packaging up a package to driving down to the um, manufacturer in, in downtown LA to putting up, you know, writing copy for the website to taking pictures. It was very homegrown. Um, and uh, at the beginning, there was nothing very glamorous about that at all. That's a great segue. So let's talk about your website since this is a primarily an e-commerce podcast. Sure. What was, what was that process like? I mean, obviously you had the name, uh, you hired someone to do the branding, I would assume. What were the next steps then? How did you decide what you were going to put online and how did you get it up there? Cost played a big role, uh, you know, at that, that does. <laughs> Yeah, so what happened was I, you know, even when you talk about branding, you know, I had maybe, I Googled a bunch of different people. I used, uh, you know, intros from different people that I knew that had started companies. And I reached out to probably 10 different graphic designers or people that could make logos and that kind of thing. And it was could I find someone who had a portfolio that I liked that could, where the price was right? And that was, that was how that went. And the same was true for the website. At the time that I started Lunia, all of the companies were using custom Magento platforms. And it was very atypical. If you were a real business, I'm air quoting that, you would not be on Shopify or you know, any sorts of things. That was where very, very small businesses went to get started. And of course, even though I was very much a small business, you know, because I aspired to so much more, I thought, oh, I should probably be on Magento. I'll just go on Shopify for a while and see how that goes. Um, and, and then, uh, so I went there because I knew I could launch a site more inexpensively and just figured eventually I'd be migrating over to Magento. To Magento. But um, when I went there, I found a web developer by going into, they have like recommended developers. And I just looked at the portfolios of everybody, called a handful of them, and it was a bit of the price is right situation. Um, and, could, and I launched a website for, and I want to say it was like 14 grand, um, put the website up. And this was obviously quite a few years ago. And just as, like I said, I assumed I was going to be migrating over to Magento. Um, and then what was lucky for me and interesting was that, of course, over time, it became more normal to run a full-scale large business off of Shopify. They, they iterated on their business and, uh, and became the kind of place that you could go for a very small company as well as a, a, a you know, much bigger company. Yeah, there's a surprising amount of D2C companies on the Shopify platform. Um, that's kind of why we asked you that question because I think it's, it's an interesting fact. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that, um, you know, I always assume I would make a custom platform or, you know, sort of build something custom. But really, it actually, the sort of open source app creation process that Shopify has, is it's hard to beat it. You know, you can get almost any nuance that you'd want for your business is probably someone that's created a, an app for that. And, and so we've been able to use a lot of the plugins within Shopify to get the customization that we wanted. And then I don't have an internal web team. So it kind of worked out well. Oh, so I guess that helps out. So what happens when you have a crisis, a, uh, a crisis, do you have someone on call or what, what does that look like? 
Yeah, so I do have an external uh, web developer that, that it's actually the very same person that we worked with back in the day. So he's been able to grow his business and uh, continue being a partner for us. So they're definitely someone that's on call. I also have a head of e-com now, so more internal technical people that are able to troubleshoot a lot of things for us. And we're on Shopify Plus, so we have internal reps at Shopify that can support us. Great. And also there's a lot of great marketing tools, which we will get into marketing in a few in a bit. So when you first got online, I mean, how many SKUs did you have? Was it just a handful of things or what did that look like? Yeah. So when I first got online, we, we launched with about 10 products. Uh, the vision I had was always a very tight line. Uh, how can I make the best items, very few of the best items. And, uh, Certainly my, my first line was not the best items. Uh, I look back and I just, you know, it's a, hindsight is, is amazing in that way. Um, but we've evolved over time because a lot of our brand, uh, you know, maybe I started going, oh man, I just wish we had the perfect robe and I wish we had the, you know, insert product name here. But then our customers kind of took over and I would get customers saying, you know, hey, I want a bra that I wear around the house. And I thought, okay, I never thought that I would be making intimates because I'm not really an intimates brand. But I thought at the end of the day, if this is something that people need to feel comfortable and confident around the home, not to go back to that, but that does become sort of our, our sieve through which we decide whether it makes sense for us to make a product or not. Um, then we should make that. And so a lot of our product variation that's happened since those very first days were things that were driven by um, customers in store coming in and asking us for something or emailing us or, you know, something on Instagram. And, and so we've evolved a lot from that stage. So how do you make the determination without letting your, because when you look at the Lunia site, it comes off as very uh, high end, which is great. And a lot of stuff is very elegant. Product photography is amazing. But where do you get to that point where you say, maybe we have too many, too many products, too many choices, uh, which kind of takes away from that ex exclusivity. Like when do you like make that decision that says, you know what, we're not going to add this product. We're just going to leave it be. Or do you just add test, remove, add back in? Like where do you, how do you do that? Yeah, we view curation to be part of our value proposition. The last thing I'm trying to do is take a, this, this product, which is divine, you know, should be something there to just make your life easy and comfortable and, and make it complicated where there's lots of choices for her. It, it is a fine line between how do I offer her enough that like most women can find something there that really speaks to them, but not too much where I'm now making it difficult and making decisions. But um, the, the, the medium for us is we're constantly um, evaluating our top performers and our bottom performers. And what we're doing is always tweaking, going, how can we continue to refine? And then sometimes we'll introduce new products in what we call the king of the hill, where we'll be like, you know what? We like that dress that we have. It's selling decently well. We think we could improve on it in this way. Let's run them both at the same time, see which one does better, and then we'll let, you know, sort of a new king of the hill emerge. And so there is an aspect of we're always trying to beat ourselves to, to improve product, and, and that we see as sort of this never-ending quest. And plus you can do that through like releasing limited editions. Do you ever try to do that? Because that kind of creates scarcity. And like, if someone is really into the Lunia brand, you could say you have a limited edition type product. Do you ever do that? 
Yeah, so we've done that. Um, a lot of those, that shows up for us with collaborations. Uh, and, and that's been a really fun thing for us to dip, toes, dip our toe into. And I should say with color too, color is something that we, you know, we'll make it and we'll often never make the color again. So I have people that own like 22 different silk sets because they wanted to make sure they got all the colors that they want because they know that it's very rare for us to rerun a color again. Yeah, you know, we hear that a lot with some of these DTC brands that they're so loyal that they want they want every variation of what is produced. And I think that's a real that's a real good signal that you're doing something right. So let's go let let's keep on the design of the how do you educate your consumer that they should pay a premium for sleepwear? I mean, I think that's the quality question, right? Which is like how do people trust the quality of the product that you have? Um, from our standpoint, um, you know, I was just chatting with somebody about this today, but it's always hard in that first moment of how do you, you know, it's an unknown brand. How do I trust this brand? And I think that certainly uh, early on, you need people who are just the kind of people that are willing to take a risk on that brand. And, you know, maybe they, the imagery sold them or the brand itself sold them. But over time, I think quality is the thing that determines whether you have a real business because you can't build a business where you're constantly having to buy new customers. You have to have a business where people are referring their friends, they're gifting their items to the friends or, you know, they're, they're repurchasing. And so for us, I think one of the things was, yes, early on there were some challenges, which I think we have really strong branding and um, a great creative team. And so I think that they helped people be willing to take the risk. But over time, the reviews that are on the website, the referrals that we get in the repeat purchases are really, I think, what's building the brand. Yeah, that's a great segue. We're going to talk about marketing and your customer acquisition strategy. How did how did you get your first customers? Was as you said, was it just word of mouth, or how did that go? It's like my mom, my best friend, <laughs> my sister. Right. You know, it's like if you love me, you'll buy it, right? Okay, so uh, <laughs> most of my my friends were my first purchasers, um, and I thank them for that because our first product was not our best product. Um, so yeah, they were all guilted into it. I used guilt. That's how I did it. Um, no, but over time, uh, I would say the process looked like, uh, very grassroots. Um, and I, I think that that's, that might be the, I think there's going to be a resurgence of people going back to that. But at the time I was doing that, there was a lot of people, you know, there was a lot of liquidity. There was a lot of people raising big money. And so I think that it just, that was, that was atypical, right? You were going straight to um, online buying consumers. And uh, I just started literally where we would make these, I have some funny stories about this, but so I started with a pop-up at my house, you know, inviting everybody I know. And then when people, I would pop into people's office places. So uh, my husband had, has a company um, that's, it's a video game company. And I said, can I go to your office at, um, right around Valentine's day and try to get, um, you know, some of your consumers either to buy it or some of your staff either to buy it for themselves or for their spouses. Um, and I'll make it worth it for you to let me go because I'm going to bake tons of brownies for people. 
Like it was just the dumbest thing, you know, but I was like, let me go. People will be fine with it because there's no pressure to buy. And at, at best, it, like, you know, or at worst, it gets me exposure and everyone gets a brownie. That was literally like what I did. I think um, brownies are the best acquisition tool out there. It was total brownie acquisition, which has probably been my lowest, co- you know, consumer acquisition cost to date. But it was me and my first employee, her name was Jasmine, and we baked together like 500 brownies. We were covered in flour. It was the crew, we made like a tower of brownies. And people were scared to come and talk to us because we were just like two people there with the rocky clothes behind us. We, we printed out a sign at like whatever the at Kinko's that, that had our brand logo on it. Um, and we were trying to, people would talk to us, but only if they already knew us. And it was super weird and awkward, but that was the kind of thing that we would do early on um, just to get our first few customers. And you have to get that wheel started somehow, you know, and then if those people referred other people and um, very kind friends would buy gifts from me for their friends. And, um, and so that's anyway, very, very organic in the early days. After that, um, what I did was started to experiment with different modes of acquisition that would get me beyond my friends and family circle. And the way I did that was, um, experimenting with Instagram, with influencers, which this was quite a few days ago or quite a few years ago. And so at that time that was not, you know, the people were doing influencer marketing, but it's not as developed as it was, as it is now. And, and then I also experimented with Facebook ads. And what I decided to do was because I you know, knew that capital was going to be scarce, I, I knew that I couldn't hire tons of people and I was going to have to stay very focused. So what I did was I, I threw a, a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and ultimately Facebook ads had a reliable return on investment for us. And so really leaned into Facebook ads. I wasn't able to do a lot of early influencer marketing because my cost of goods is so high um, that I I couldn't send out a bunch of product and just hope that maybe someone would post it and I couldn't pay for people to post it. So I just leaned into what was working and that was how we started. So you're saying Facebook, out of everything you've done, Facebook ads have been the most successful as far as customer acquisition? No, what I'm saying is that's where I started. Oh, that's where you started. Okay, so we're taking you through the journey. Because I was also going to say it's a shame about the influencer marketing because the product is made for it. But if it doesn't make financial sense, I guess that's that's a no-go. Well, in a way, it isn't made for it, which was the challenge, right? Because what people are typically sharing is, you know, they they have their hair all done up, they're wearing their Mm -hmm. outfit. They're not usually, and I think the world is shifting, and um, but I think that they're not usually sharing the behind the scenes moments, like those intimate moments. Our product is for those like very real raw who are you when no one's looking type of moments and that's not always what makes it to instagram so again it's like i think one of those scenarios where you have to look at your product and your business and even if um maybe influencer marketing is blowing up uh, you have to really determine does that actually make sense for your product and, and does it make sense for where you're at at that moment in time uh, you know as time has gone on and we've had uh, now we're able to hold down multiple marketing channels at once because I have a bigger team. Certainly we have more tools at our disposal, but early on it was just about focus. Uh, yeah, I understand. Right now sleep 
sleep in itself is a huge, it's not only a big, it's weird to say, but sleep is a big trend now. People are really into getting sleep. And, you know, even what's the thing that Ariana Huffington started, like she has, has a whole foundation just based on sleep. Sleep your way to the top. I remember it. Sleep yes. your way right. to the top. Thank you. Are you kind of uh, touting the health benefits of your, your product or how, how do you work with that? Because I think it's a real opportunity from my point of view. Yeah, so mostly I let Casper tell that story. Um, it's a very technical story about, you know, you should get eight hours a night or you shouldn't, you know, this kind of light is bad to have around your bed or, you know. The, my theory on that is if you hit Google and you ask Google, you know, tips for getting a good night's sleep, you're going to get a million articles about it. We know how to get good, we, we, we know like that we need to get sleep and we know tips on how to get good sleep. I think if I, to me, I wanna make a product that aids you in getting good sleep, but at the end of the day, if you're not sleeping well, it's probably not because you don't know you're supposed to get sleep. There's probably other things going on. And so for me, what I've always focused on is how do we help her with the other things and how do we not judge her? And I mean, now we have a logo brand, so I should say, how do we not judge people um, because we have men's and women's for, um, for not being able to get sleep and how do we make them feel their best self even if they can't get perfect sleep. And so for us, you know, I think one of the things that we think about when we're trying to be innovative with our fabric is going, what I never want is your clothes to wake you up. You know, how do I make the straps that don't twist, waistbands that don't dig in or ride up? How do I make, um, you know, a collection that if you're a hot sleeper helps to keep your temperature in check? You know, the, these are the using thermoregulating fabrics, lightweight fabrics, warm fabrics, you know, depending on what that, that individual needs. So more of an individualized sleep solution, but also not make it where it's so prescriptive. I actually almost want you to buy it because it's so cute and it's comfortable and that that functionality is living in the background. It's just this thing that is making it where you're just passively get having a better night and, and thus a better day. And, and so while I think there's a lot of technicalities of sleep that are very interesting and look, I, I mean, I, I think for me as a parent, having experienced incredible sleep deprivation, um, I, I can attest to the importance of sleep. Your brain does not work. It doesn't store memories. It doesn't, uh, there's so many things that happen when you don't get good sleep. But usually if you're not getting good sleep, you know, for me, if I'm not, it's because I'm stressed. It's because I have kids, you know, it's, it's because of a thousand reasons. So you just telling me that I should sleep more doesn't really help me. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I just kind of always look at marketing and I look at those kind of conversations as an opportunity to be real with our person and understand them and like, I don't need someone to lecture me on the sleep that I'm not getting. I'm well aware. I can see the circles under my eyes. You know, it's like, right. so we're trying to come at it from a place of um, support. And, and that's how we've always viewed it. And I say that despite the fact that we're actually a very technically savvy brand. So even though I'm not spending a ton of time leading with that functionality, that is actually one of the biggest differentiators of our product is the thought we're putting into the functionality of the product. Excellent answer. Can I, was there something about an FDA regulated fabric that you guys had? So our restore collection um, is using Celiant, 
which is a basically a mineral blend which helps increase your body's circulation. And that is an FDA regulated device, Salient is. And it's actually minerals that are extruded into the, um, the, the cotton itself. So it's not a topical. Um, and, it's, it's a, and then what that basically does is your body is constantly giving off energy. And, and what, that, what that blend does is actually reflects it back on you using like infrared because your body's already giving off that energy. And what that does is increases your body's circulation. And so it's fascinating. I mean, they use these kind of things in military and in, in you know, some medical uh, uses. And so to be able to bring that into sleep made a lot of sense to us. Not just for, um, you know, it's, it's really great as an example if you have like a big day at the gym and you want to speed up your muscle recovery or um, if you're going on a flight where they talk about circulation being really important. So Restore is a really great product for that. Wow, that is totally fascinating. I, that really hits my my nerd nerve there, and I want to get a whole suit made of this fabric. Lago's your Lago's the place to come. <laughs> Great segue. So I want to talk to you about Lago. What was the decision to create the companion brand Lago? And one other question, in which you can combine them together. Why keep them separate? So. Um, it's interesting because we, we grappled with how to approach that. I started as a female-oriented product because it was just what I could personally relate to. And also, I looked at, you know, it's funny, but um, I think there can be an advantage to looking at your own buying habits. But in many cases, my husband is not the one that's going out and, and exploring new brands. I'm bringing them to him. And so I think I always felt like, hey, we'll start with women. Uh, we know that they're more exper you know, experimental consumers, I think that they'll take a chance on us. And then if they love it, hopefully they'll help, you know, and if we ever want to get into men's, hopefully they'll help introduce that product to men. And, and I think that I didn't know from day one whether I was going to combine the brands or, or make them separate. But what happened was I just, I do feel that one of the things that we tend to be really good at is this relationship with our customer. And I think that um, when you have to dilute yourself into being a brand that's for everybody, like, oh, I speak to women, I speak to men, you're going to lose a lot of resonance. I agree. And, and I think that at the end of the day, like, I don't, you know, I never really bought Under Armour. It still feels like a men's brand to me. And Lululemon is still trying to recover from being, you know, a woman's brand early day. And, and I you know, so, and even though I think their products are both great and of course they cross over, I just think you create a barrier for yourself. I just want to let Lago be for guys and not have to try to make something that works for everybody. And I also, as we sort of unpack this, and it's really great. I mean, I've been, like you said, I've been able to reference my personal living experience a lot and those around me. And, and I noticed with my husband, a lot of the demand for men's, like the reason we finally launched Lago was because um, my husband was kind of like, all right, what about me? And guys were coming into the store buying Lunia for their wives and being like, what about us? And I thought, I guess this is the moment, right? The, the consumer is asking for this. And so I think now's the, now's the time. And when we started to ask them like what, cause we wanted it to have the same integrity of product development and of marketing and approach that Lunia has. Lunia's always come from a customer first perspective. And it was helpful because like I said, I was kind of that customer. And then 
a lot of the people on the early media team were also that customer. So we were able to be just naturally uh, very authentic in that way. And so what we did was got a bunch of guys together and was like, what do you want? You know, what's annoying about the clothes that you're wearing around the home right now? How could I make them better? Um, what resonates with you? Uh, how do you like to use the website? And so how do you want to talk on social? And so for us, a lot of that showed up there. We actually, when we asked guys how they wanted to use the website, they looked at ours and they were like, too many words. <laughs> like bullets, please, you know, and they actually wanted me to lead with the technical. Um, and whereas women, when I tested that, they weren't as interested in that. They really wanted an aspirational image. And so we're still in that tweaking process and refining process. But I think that by having those brands separate, um, we're, we're not hiding the connection between the brands. Like I think Lunia and Lago, they're very much connected. But I liked when you called it a companion brand. It is a companion, just like, you know, I, I live at home with my companion and this is, um, and there's a product for each of us. So they're, they're related, but we let them have their own their sort of autonomy um, and, and so that they can speak best to their audience. They're like two siblings, but they like to have their own rooms. <laughs> there we go. I yes, usually put them I, in a relationship, though, so I'm like, now it's getting weird because they're siblings <laughs> and in a relationship, yes. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. But the aesthetic's great. I mean, I, I'm looking at some of this stuff. I would wear some of the sleepwear out and about. It's really got that millen millennial, I was going to say millennial, uh, minimalist aesthetic that is real popular right now, and uh, stuff looks really good. I think that that's one of the thoughts I had, really, in, in overall design, which is, look, we're, we talk a lot, people, you know, there's a lot of conversations around sustainability. And there's, I think when we look at what's caused a lot of the challenges in um, clothing, which is particularly damaging from an environmental standpoint, you're really looking at that fast fashion world in particular, right? Where people are wearing an item uh, very few times and they're getting rid of it or they're, you know, just kind of sits in the back of their closet. From my standpoint, I wanted to create you know, really high quality um, basics. They're the thing you're going to wear every day when you come home from work, right? So it's, for me, it was like, maybe there's occasionally like a pattern or some color that we'll do, but, it, you know, we wanted a clean, minimal aesthetic, something that's easy to wear that you can wear every day that you feel like you can get years of use out of. And, um, and so that there's sort of like a, you know, foundational reason why we approach fashion in that way. Yeah, and I think there's a large demographic now that agrees with exactly what you said. They want things to be more sustainable. They want to get away from the fast fashion. They want something that they can rely on and not have to buy, you know, uh, seven cheap things. They want to buy one nice thing, and they don't want yes. to have a thousand things in their closets because they don't have big closets. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Things like that. All right, let's talk about uh, the business of Lunya. Uh, are you guys raising money or what, what is the plans for the future uh, to grow, expand? And what, what are you guys planning on doing? You know what? We're planning to get profitable. <laughs> that's always a good goal. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the thing, you know, um, it's been fascinating. Like I said, I started eight years ago and I've been through various different market cycles and, um, you know, there's the phase of grow at any cost. And, and then and then there's been what I think is sort of happening recently. I think when you saw a lot of the IPOs with um, these these media darlings like the Caspers of the world yeah. that haven't gone super well. And I think a lot of that is people are, are you know, or even the markets are generally kind of done with seeing people 
run large businesses that don't make any money. And I don't want to be on a never ending fundraising spree. To me, the true marker of a good business is a business, you know, there's a few markers, but one of them I would say is a business that can self-sustain. Um, it can kind of grow within, uh, within its means. And I really, really am working hard to get Lunia to that place because I think I want to see it be a, a long-term brand. And I think if we're always reliant on, um, on financing, we're going to have a you know, it's going to have a problem. You're susceptible to the markets. Yeah. It sounds like the safer and saner way to go. Uh, so what do you, what do you consider success for your company? You said profitability, would that be the right answer? Uh, I think that's one marker and that's more of a business marker. So that's the marker that I would look for to go, Hey, do I have a, is that a, like a good business? Um, but actually I would, I actually look at success metrics much more around, um, repeat purchases and referrals. Uh, because look, I can get anybody to buy a product once, but can I get you to buy it twice? Do you love it so much that you'll buy it again? That really tells me that we've done our job well. That says that it wasn't just good marketing that got you in, that was that the marketing was good, it got you to purchase, and then you loved what you got so much that you wanted to buy it again, or you wanted to tell your friend about it. Long-term, I think those are the metrics that really matter. Yeah. And plus you have the loyal customers that buy up everything in every color. So that should tell you something. I know. I, I can't believe it. I remember chatting <laughs> with one of, uh, one of those customers the other, the other day and it was just like, I'm like, you have 22. I don't even have 22 silk sets. I was like, <laughs> I mean, I'm pumped. Like, don't get me wrong. I was like, that is serious. I'm like, I also kind of want to see your closet. <laughs> like, where do you put all those? <laughs> All right, we're going to wind this down. So we're going to talk a little bit about you yourself as an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur obviously is demanding work. What is a typical day for you? How do you how do you manage your time and how do you find a balance? Oh, the balance question is a hard one to answer. Uh, I would say, yeah, I don't. You know, it's, it's so funny. I, I struggle with this one because I always, I want to be honest about it in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think that I, I don't know that I have good balance. I don't know that I've had great balance from the beginning. I mean, I stay up, I get up at like four in the morning. I do emails till 7am that I'm with my kids, get them ready for school, go to work, uh, work all day till like six, get home, put my kids to bed, feed them, you know, do the whole like nighttime routine, get in bed, have like maybe an hour, 45 minutes with my husband, which I'm hopefully not doing emails during, I go to sleep and do it over <laughs> again. You know, like it's, it's grueling. And I tell people that not because I just always want to be, I, you know, I, I always want to present what it really is. So I'm not like selling the, the fantasized version of it, but what I'll tell you is it's gotten better. Um, it's one of those things that early on, we just had very, a lot of junior people and we're all trying to figure it out at once, which means like we're, you know, we're hitting every branch as we fall down the tree. You know, it's just like so painful constantly. I have to remember that one. Oh, it's just like, like brutal. I always talk to people about that is like the downside of the sort of slow organic growth is you don't get to hire experts, right? You're hiring a bunch of incredibly passionate, highly capable people that are just figuring it out right next to you. And um, it's just, it's just like, it's just hard, you know? And, and I think my own growth has been really hard. Like 
we, we don't talk about this enough. I think that what it takes to run a business that makes five million a year is very different, you know, than what it takes to run a business that makes fifteen, and what it takes to make run a business that makes fifty million a year. You know, think about the the employee growth, the sophistication that's required in terms of internal and external comms. Like when you run a small business, it's you and five to ten people in a room. You turn around. I don't need process. I just look around and the marketing person sits right behind me. And, you know, it's just like, it's, it's a, when you go to a bigger business, suddenly I now need to know how to do process really well. And I need to know the systems to scale my business. And, and then you go to the next phase of that. And now I'm like, I need to understand HR and, you know, just the competencies are changing. And so while in some ways my job um, has been able to focus and I do get a little bit more sleep than I did early on, I will also say that the demands of an entrepreneur of a fast growing company are never ending because you, and, and not just the entrepreneur, frankly, all of my employees, we talk about this constantly. We all have to reinvent ourselves. I have uh, one of my very long-time employees, uh, she started in, as a social media manager, and then she was running e-com and social, and then, you know, and, and then she's now our art director. And then even when she became an art director, we were still, you know, 15 people in a room. I'm now 45 people, and she was doing all the photography, and half the time she was also the model in the photography. And then as we got bigger, I was like, it's no longer about what you do. It's how do you take your artistic vision and scale it? And how do you get other photographers to shoot in a way that feels consistent with your artistic vision? I mean, the evolution that's required on a very human level to be the entrepreneur or to work at a fast growing entrepreneurial organization is a lot and um, not incredibly highly conducive to a well-balanced life, <laughs> back to your original question. But I think the trade-off that you make is that instead of me having uh, you know, like a distinct work and then maybe distinct areas of passion, I've managed to combine those things. And I think for the people that have been at Lumia for a while too, that it's, it's their work and their passion are often intertwined. And so I think through that, they're getting a kind of balance. Um, it's the best I can do. Yeah. And you, you talked about how crazy it is, but you have to admit that, it's still your thing and you probably, you know, out of all the things that you'd want to do, you'd probably want to be doing this instead of something else. Yeah. Uh, what, what would you do if you weren't doing this? So, um, I'm really into art. I'm, I'm really, I'd say I'm, I've sort of rhymed the line between a, uh, creative brain and an analytical brain. So I'm, I'm sort of a generalist in that way, but I've really had to use one side of my brain for a long time. And I'm really looking forward to getting back into creative. I have set up a little art room for myself and I want to get in there. <laughs> I, you know, I need unstructured time. It, it's really hard to do that though, because I also have kids. So oftentimes what's happening right now is when I get time, uh, I really am trying to spend that with them. And, and so again, that balance question comes in, but if I was, you know, if I had no kids and no responsibilities and I had more free time, definitely art would be high on the list, creating it, going to see other people's art, um, traveling and, and exploring different cultures, uh, very much things I'm interested in. Well, my answer would be the same. I'm an, I'm a graphic designer by trade. Um, and finding that time for art sometimes is very frustrating, but it's, I think it's something that's necessary for your sanity. 
Yeah, I think so too. It's like, it's almost the very frivolousness of it that feels so worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. I always try to make time every day. It doesn't always happen, but it's very rewarding. All right. Uh, What's the best advice you could give an entrepreneur or startup right now for someone struggling to move their idea forward? When I give people advice and they haven't started their business yet. So if they're maybe sitting an idea, um, I often reference the, the, the good to great hedgehog principle. Uh, I think that that's a really good one for determining whether you have a good idea. But if we're talking about someone who's already an entrepreneur, um, I would say always be a student. And you, it's, it's almost like being a parent, actually. The parallels are really strong. But um, I think that at a certain point, we all realized our, our parents were humans, you know, and that they're fallible. I think that I've always tried to be with my team, both a leader, but also somebody who was sort of open about the areas that I'm working on. One, because I want them to be open about the, I want them to not feel like they have to hide from the areas they're working on. But I think that, like I said earlier, uh, my job is to, to evolve with the needs of my business. And the only way I'm able to do that is by continuing to be open and to challenging myself for growth and, um, and sort of be a sponge. And so that's one thing I think that's really important to remember as you're getting going, which is like, in a way, don't expect to get the hang of it and suddenly feel like you know what you're doing. If your business is growing, you're probably never going to feel like that because right when you get comfortable at a stage, it's going to grow to the next one and you're going to have to keep reinventing yourself. I think you have to get over the fear of feeling like you need to know, have all the answers and know how to do everything and just get comfortable with the ambiguity and the personal growth that's required. Yeah. Just let go a little bit. Be, you know, I, I totally agree with the, the analogy of being a sponge. Always keep learning. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the things I'll say, just, I have to make one note of this because I'm really sick of the press right now and the, the sensationalist stories they're writing on founders. Um, you know, I think that one thing you have to, remember is that like founders are people like anybody else that are doing their best. I'm not saying that that means they can have bad behavior, but I think that, you know, we love a headline about, you know, a company that was doing really well. We love to bring them down and, and to um, sort of disparage people who are trying. I know a lot of these founders that are running the businesses that we're seeing the headlines about. And I think that they are, really trying, you know, and they've never tried to pretend that they're perfect. We're all just doing our best. Our, my employees are doing their best. You know, I can find flaws with any person, but I think that it's like at the end of the day, uh, when you sign up to work at an entrepreneurial fast growing organization, you, you're getting somebody who's, you know, especially if it's founder run, I think you have to know what you're getting. You know, you're getting somebody, you have to buy into that human, that person, like, do you agree with their values? Do you buy into the mission and the passion and the vision? And like, are they open? And then, you know, and can you be comfortable with letting them evolve and improve right before your eyes? All right. Since we're uh, running low on time here, I'm going to ask you one final question. What's the last thing you bought online? So I actually bought the the game, Do You Know Me? It's a party game. And uh, it's actually great because we're all cooped up a bit uh, inside right now. And it's a super fun game to play with people. 
gets us really laughing and you find out that you don't know your spouse who maybe I've been married to for, for 10 years. Maybe you don't know them as well as you thought. So really, really fun. Uh, it looks like a cards, like a cards from humanity. What is it? Cards? Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, it's in that vein, right? So it's one cards of Cards Against <laughs> Cards for Humanity. Yeah. <laughs> That's we can what we use all that right now. Yeah, everybody can use that right now. No, this, one, this one's called Do You Know Me? So it's really, it's, it's fun. Yeah, I'm looking at it on Amazon. Oh, it's pretty cool. Very interesting. Okay, great interview. Uh, Ashley, this is the talk, this is part of the show where you get to do your shameless plug and tell everybody where they can find you and any other information you want to share with the audience. No problem. Sounds good. Okay. Well, I'm unfortunately or fortunately have my hands on a lot of things. So hopefully this won't be too long, but Lunya, L-U-N-Y-A dot co. That's our website. If you want to buy women's sleepwear or, or clothes to wear around your house, um, Lago, L-A-H-G-O dot co is the men's line. Um, it's Lunya or Lago on Instagram. Um, and if you also are looking for more fun things to do around the home, I recently started um, or co-founded a, um, a company called The Deep, and it's thedeep.life on Instagram. It's super fun, really great engaging questions that you can ask with, you know, your friends or even just of yourself to try to figure out, um, you know, who you really are, what you think about different topics and, and it kind of gets you looking at the world in a new way. So super fun. And then if you want to follow along with me personally, it's Ashley double underscore Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L on Instagram. Awesome. Great. Thank you for a wonderful interview. Uh, guys, you got anything else? I learned a lot today. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks right. so much. Sorry about the hiccup in the beginning. No worries. No worries. I do got to jump because that, that call was actually my for, at 11.45. So thank you guys a lot. This was really fun. All thank right. you. We'll, all right. We'll let you get back to work. Thanks. Once again, we'd like to thank Ashley Merrill of Lunia for joining us on the podcast. It was a great interview. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. Uh, if you have any comments on the show, reach out to us on the social media Everywhere, we're at Sumo Heavy. And if you want to learn more about Sumo Heavy, we are at sumoheavy.com. We'll see you next time in the ring.